Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And today, what do we got for you? I got what uh, what looks like the beginnings of a retreat from Bakhmut. We have the ammunition and artillery situation in Ukraine. We have some new numbers on that that we'll go over. And then we're going to talk about the G20 meeting in India. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news, why don't we? So, the U.S. is continuing its threats of sanctions against China in the event that China supplies arms to Russia. Now, I'm not convinced the Chinese are going to do this yet. They might in the future. They do have a significant overlap between their equipment and Russia's equipment because China spent so long buying its equipment from Russia and getting licensed to produce Russian equipment in China. So they have lots of overlap in their equipment from their fighter jets to their artillery, and more importantly for this war, for their artillery shells. China has lots and lots and lots of the exact type of artillery shell that the Russians are using for their artillery in the war right now. And I was watching... I forget if it was the Duran or if I was watching a, a different show where they had a guest on and they were talking about, oh, I think it was Douglas McGregor, uh, either him or Brian Bradletic, either one are good sources to go to for information on the war, but they were talking about how the Chinese are moving on to, I believe it was 155 millimeter ammunition for their shells. And that's sort of the diameter of the shell. Russia is using 150 meter right now. So China's new artillery is using this wider shell, which means that it can't use the smaller shells anymore unless they use their older artillery. But since China's moving on to the newer models and they need their newer artillery shells, that leaves a massive stockpile of these 150 millimeter shells. And we're talking millions upon millions of them that they could ship off by train to Russia, and really, if they wanted to, straight to the front lines in Ukraine, because the Russians, uh, contrary to popular belief, do in fact have their logistics together, which is how they're going to be, which is how they have supplied as much weapons and ammunition to their troops as they have up until now. And we'll get into some of those numbers later on. And uh, it's quite the discrepancy between what they have and what the Ukrainians have. I'll just say that much if I haven't said it already over the past few, I don't know, months. But that's what's going on here. The U.S. is threatening sanctions. The EU is threatening sanctions as well. I don't think they're going to do it. I don't think they have it in them to do it. Certainly not in a a meaningful way. They'll like sanction a, a person rather than an industry, those type of sanctions. And even when they do, should they get around to it, I don't think it's going to have the type of impact on China that a lot of people overestimate and assume that they will. Everyone thought that Russia's economy was going to just collapse in on itself when we hit them with the mother of all sanctions. Well, Russia's doing perfectly fine now. 
their economy is actually growing slower than it was before. But just like in 2014, their economy is growing. Well, I, I can't say 2014, but since 2014, Russia's economy has grew, even while they were under sanction. China's economy is larger, and they have way more industry, way more trade partners. The world is much more dependent on Chinese goods than even they are on Russian energy and Russian raw materials. So the ability of these sanctions to work on China, and certainly the ability to get other countries to go along with these sanctions, will be undoubtedly less than even what we've seen with Russia. And we haven't exactly seen what anyone in their right mind would call success in our sanctions policy against Russia. So I don't see them doing these sanctions against China. And if they do, they're not going to work. And, uh, and I just don't see the conditions being met for them to do the sanctions because I don't see China supplying arms to Russia, at least not for the moment. That could change. I mean, we flat out rejected China's call for uh, negotiations and a settlement which has been their position the entire time. I don't know why the these leaders in the West are freaking out over what the Chinese have said. I guess it's sort of an uh, interesting parallel to how the Europeans were afraid of American intervention in their wars because America had massive industry, massive military potential, and was calling them out back in World War I saying, hey, why don't you state your war aims? Why don't you come to a negotiated settlement? Both sides said no. We're going to keep fighting. And they were simultaneously afraid that the United States would come in on the other guy's side. We could have gone either way, especially early on in the war. But I see a similar situation to that playing out now, except instead of the United States, it's China. Because we're involved. You know, it's the West versus Russia. And, well, Russia's winning. So, but we're afraid that China's going to step in and put an end to our ambitions with their massive military potential. And unlike the United States back in 1914, 15, 16, and even 17 up until April, the Chinese already have a massive military. They already have a massive Navy. We had a Navy at the time. It was pretty big. But the Chinese are already relatively militarized. So their ability to do something immediately in the event that they did get involved is way greater than what we had back in the day. But America and China are two different countries. We operate under two different principles. And it's geography-based, largely, and geostrategic-based. But those are the differences and the similarities I'm seeing with the situation we have now. But enough of that. We're going to get to the next topic, which is Biden having a basal cell carcinoma removed and that that's a type of skin cancer he had it removed during his latest physical so now on top of questions of his mental fitness we open the door to questions of is he healthy in general because uh, cancer has this habit of coming back so this could come back. It's gone for now. At least that's what the physicist says, the White House physicist. But Biden really doesn't need more questions on his health added on top of his ailing mental condition. But that's something I saw uh, while gathering the news for today's episode. We have Nigeria's election, which is now contested. 
by three parties instead of two. So perhaps something will come of this. Uh, the contestion uh, starts with Atiku Abubakar. Atiku Abubakar, there we go. He's the leader of the People's Democratic Party. Uh, again, this is Nigeria's election and their parties. So Atiku Abubakar is protesting this. He led a march with him and his voters, protesting the result of the election. After the election commission, specifically the National Independent Election Commission, that's their full name, the election commission proclaimed Bola Tenubu as the winner. And the third party candidate, which don't conflate that as a lesser player, but the third party candidate of the Labour Party, Peter Obi of the Labour Party, is also protesting the vote. And the reason this is significant is one, because uh, back when I was making the rounds on Twitter, I came across a statement from uh, Biden's Twitter, which I don't think is actually managed by him, but rather people around him, saying that, well, we hope that everyone in Nigeria's upcoming elections will honor the results. And I'm like, wait a second. I've heard this song before. This one's a classic. So they say that, and I'm like, okay, so we're intervening in Nigeria's election now, and they don't want anyone to say anything about it. Because that's essentially what that phrase says. We, every, I hope everyone accepts the result of the election. Well, people usually accept the result of an election. You don't need to tell people to accept the results. They will do so unless there's something funny going on with the election. You, that's not something you need to worry about. But if you're the one coming in, messing with things and trying to skew outcomes in your favor, well, of course you're gonna say, hey, don't, hey, don't, don't look over here. Don't go questioning the results of this election that we meddled with. No, 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 no. Just accept the result of the election which again, people in a normal election would have done anyway. So what are you here for? Why are you saying this? And so I saw that and I'm like, okay, we're gonna, we're meddling in Nigeria's election now. So we'll see what comes of this. And now as expected, the election is contested. And the three people we're talking about here, uh, the leaders of the, well, the three primary candidates, I should say, uh, Atiku, we mentioned, Peter Obi, we also mentioned. And then there's, Bola Tinobu, uh, Tinubu, who was proclaimed the winner by the election commission. And these people, in, in this order, uh, Tinubu, Atiku, and Peter got 37, 29, and 25% of the vote, respectively. So between Atiku and Obi, so that's the People's Democratic Party and the Labour Party, because they're both contesting the election right now, and I believe that they're even teaming up on this as well. We might see some investigations into this because that's well over half the vote between just the two of them. That's about 54% of the vote, which is almost 20% more than uh, Bola Tinubu got by himself. He got 37%. So we'll see what comes of this. I thought that was an interesting development especially right after seeing those statements by the U.S. Uh, on uh, Twitter. But uh, I guess Twitter can be useful for something. 
but we'll move on to the U.S. Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, who is currently set to visit the Middle Eastern states of Jordan, Israel, and Egypt. Uh, why is he going to Jordan? Who knows? He's going to Israel. They're going to talk about the violence between Israel and the Palestinians, and then nothing's going to be done about it. No one's going to make a peace plan. No one's going to make a roadmap. It is the strangest thing when you really stop and think about this, because it wasn't that long ago that Blinken went to the Middle East and stopped in Israel as well, and Egypt as well. Now that I think about it, did he stop in all three of the same countries? Uh, I forget if he stopped in Jordan. I think he did, and perhaps one more country. But yeah, they they go to Israel. They, they, they talk, and inevitably... It always happens while there's some uh, uptick in violence happening between Israel and the Palestinians. But then nothing gets done. I mean, it's, you have all these articles that get published. Oh, look at all the fighting. Oh, look at all the bloodshed. Uh, this person visits Israel amidst wave of violence. And all these people are aware of it. All these people know it's happening. And they'll all say, oh, yeah, it's a problem. But then nothing gets done yeah you're not even gonna pretend you're, you're not even gonna say hey we can do this, this 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 and this if we all just come together for like three seconds you know what I mean? we don't even get like a roadmap we get literally nothing and then they just move on to the next country in the tour it's like what was the purpose of this visit you have you have solved nothing the primary issue concerning israel is the status of Palestine. And these, uh, our Secretary of State, Blinken, ugh, and now our Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, are going to Israel. Well, they're not going to Israel together. Blinken went before. Now Austin's going. Both go to Israel. They're both going to do literally nothing about the primary security concern of this supposed ally of ours. And then they're just going to walk over into the next country? Like, what? what's the purpose? I don't understand. I really don't get it. But uh, I guess it makes sense to them. But, but what's going on with Egypt? Because I remember specifically that Blinken did go to Egypt. And now Austin is also planning to go to Egypt. What are these people planning to do with Egypt? What are they going to do with Egypt? What can you do with Egypt? How does Egypt play into this are, are you trying to gain control over the straits Dad, what exactly are they trying to do here i i don't see it i yeah egypt is a major player though they have a hundred million people so i guess it's good to improve relations there but what exactly are we trying to achieve because they just go there and then they disappear again at least with israel you can you can point to something that you might be there to solve. What are they going to Egypt for? I can't tell you. I really can't tell you. Maybe they're desperately trying to keep them out of the bricks because the bricks is a uh, the bricks is looking hot these days. Everyone everyone wants in. It's the new it's the nightclub of the world. Everyone wants into the bricks. And who could blame them, honestly? But it is very strange how many of these people want to go to Egypt all of a sudden. But that's Egypt. We have the EU preparing a civilian mission to Moldova in the summer, uh, which might be dragging Moldova into the conflict against Russia in some way, shape, or form. 
we'll see what becomes of that as things develop and they actually set up a specific goal in mind for what this mission is supposed to be doing. We'll get more details on that in the future. We have President Zelensky vowing that he will not retreat from Bakhmut, uh, I say condemning thousands of men to an early grave. And then we have the Pentagon simultaneously saying that the fall of Bakhmut will not mean strategic victory for Russia. Oh boy. But we'll get into why they're wrong in just a moment when we get to the meat of this episode. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start with what looks like the beginnings of a retreat from Bakhmut. Maybe. And I say maybe because of the specifics of this story. Now, we've been talking about the Battle of Bakhmut for months now, especially since August, when it, you know, I thought that that's when it began, but apparently there was fighting outside the city uh, earlier on in the war. But late summer in August is when the battle started to intensify. And we saw clear signs of the Russians trying to take the city. And over the course of the winter, we've seen the Russians sort of move around and take land around the city. It was just a few weeks ago uh, that Solidar fell. Now we're talking... Uh, we're talking Vulagar, Krasnaya Gora. Now those haven't fallen yet, but they're being pressed on greatly by the Russians in an attempt to cut the city off. Now... They've gotten very, very close as of now. They're very, very close. There are about two main roads going in. One of the roads is under Russian control. The other is within eye shot, which means it's well within the range of Russian artillery. Anything that moves along the second road, the one that the Ukrainians still control, can and will be hit by whatever the Russians choose to hit it with effectively closing the road because why would the Russians allow you to move equipment in there? And more importantly, the Russians won't allow you to move equipment out, which means that as we come closer to this potential encirclement and as Bakhmut is now very clearly in the midst of what the Russians call a cauldron, which is where they envelop a city from about three sides or a position from about three sides come close to cutting it off from the other, forming, you know, a cauldron. You know, how it's wide in the middle and then it almost closes, but then you still have the opening where you can put the food in. So they have a cauldron here. And in this cauldron, they have total superiority of fire. Total superiority of fire. They can hit anywhere, anytime in this pocket, and there's nothing you can do about it because the ukrainians don't have the firepower to break out if the russians do close the jaws of the pocket so they're left with either a stay there in this indefensible position i mean the russians are enveloping them almost on all four sides quite frankly it's not like the the west is just completely wide open for the ukrainians to move and maneuver no it's like a, a narrow, straightforward line that the Russians have left open because they haven't been able to take it yet. That's That means they're enveloping you from the back as well, just not completely. 
that's the position that these troops in Bakhmut are facing, and the Ukrainians have decided to stay. But as Russia gets closer and closer to actually taking this, uh, the city, well, I, will, I feel like saying taking it hostage, because that, that's a hostage situation is what they're going to have in the Ukrainians in a minute. But if the Ukrainians do decide to retreat at any moment uh, from this point onwards, you know, until Russia actually does close the encirclement and cuts them off, Ukraine's going to be left with a choice. If that's, again, if they choose to retreat now, which would still be the better thing to do, if they choose to retreat, they're not going to be able to get the heavy equipment out. They just can't. Because the heavy equipment has to go by the roads, especially after it rains and all the fields get too wet for the equipment to travel across. They'll just sink into the mud. They have to take the road. But the roads can be hit by Russian artillery, anti-tank rounds, missiles, you name it. So if they want to leave, they will have to, in essence, exchange their equipment for the lives of their men. And even then, they're still going to take losses because the Russians aren't just going to sit there and let you walk out. They're going to hit you with artillery. But at the very least, if you're traveling by night, the Ukrainian men, the infantry, have the ability to get out relatively unnoticed. But if you're driving this loud-ass tank through the field along the, the one road that you got, well, the Russians don't need to see you to know exactly where to shoot. Now, do they? Ukraine can't take its heavy equipment with it out of the city. It's going to have to abandon it if it wants to withdraw. I'm not convinced that Ukraine's high command wants to withdraw. I'm even more convinced now that Zeluzhny, even though his whole stance is uh, defense in the right places, even he has chosen to sacrifice men on this point. Uh, defense is his thing. And Bakhmut is a place that he has decided to make his stand on. Zelensky has said we're not giving up an inch of ground either. Zelensky's thing is offense. But here, Zelensky is dedicated on the defense. So you have the president of the country and their commander-in-chief overlapping in an increasingly rare agreement between the two, overlapping in their decision to stay in Bakhmut. So that's what High Command says. But I would not have named this segment what I named it if that was all there was to the story. Because we have some new developments that may suggest that the battle for Bakhmut may finally be coming to a close. For the past weeks, we've been, we've been asking why Ukraine decided to go all in on Bakhmut instead of falling back, and we still don't have an answer. And we can see that they are still determined to hang on to Bakhmut, but I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. Why would they keep feeding men into what, at this point, numerous Russian generals have openly called a meat grinder, something that Ukraine's casualties in this part of the front alone can attest to. Why would they do this? We, uh, we just have these questions and they're not being answered. But it seems like I am not the only one who has had these questions. Because apparently, some of the troops fighting in and around Ukraine, uh, not in and around Ukraine, in and around the city of Bakhmut, have also 
had this question. Why are we here? What are we doing? What's our objective? What is so important about this city that we have to come here and die? We come, we get here and we're told we have four hours to live. Good luck. And we're just suffering horrendous casualties. We're being bombed. We can't see the enemy because they're just spamming artillery. Why are we here? And it appears that some of these Ukrainian troops who share these questions of ours have, well, they must have come to the conclusion that there was no good answer to those questions. And I say that because these units, some of them, have started to withdraw from Bakhmut. And from what we can tell, this is going directly against orders from Ukraine's high command. And I did this, look, I wrote this uh, yesterday, that, that I wrote those notes in my, uh, on my iPad yesterday, and then this morning I wake up and I go back to our rapid-fire news for just a second, we get Zelensky saying he will not retreat from Bakhmut. So we can confirm that this is going directly against the orders from high command. I, I just had to guess based off of, you know, Zelensky's usual position on these matters. But now we can confirm that they this is going completely against what high command is saying. Even Zeluzhny was in favor of defense and holding on to Bakhmut. And yet they're walking away, which, which effectively makes this a mutiny. If we're being 100% here, it's a mutiny. For the time being, it looks like it's a small mutiny. But when you look at how intense the fighting for Bakhmut is, even a small mutiny can have massive implications because the Russians are still on the offensive. Uh, and but but before I jump to conclusions, I should say because I will jump to conclusions shortly. I'll say that it is a possibility that somewhere in Ukraine's high command, perhaps not Zelensky or maybe Zelensky, just not publicly, somewhere in Ukraine's high command, the order to retreat may have been given. Maybe. Though likely, is still against Zelensky's wishes. Uh, if that is the case, assuming Zelensky himself isn't, you know, saying we need to get out in private. If we assume his public stance is his real stance, well, then these, this order, which is possible was given, came against Zelensky's wishes, and was carried out without his knowing. But it is more likely that given what we've seen for the past, you know, half year, combined with the fact that more troops are being sent to reinforce Bakhmut, that these troops are acting against orders. I don't see them acting under anybody's orders here, except for their commanders, who are in the same position as the, the troops there. They're, they're the ones on the front lines. So they're saying, okay, well, we have all these questions, no one wants to answer them, and we can't come up with a good reason, so we're going to get out. And so intentionally or not, this withdrawal of a, of a number of these Ukrainian troops weakens the defenses around Bakhmut at a time when, remember, Russia is still on the offensive. It's a very slow and methodical offensive, but it has been making progress and has been making more progress in recent weeks. Now, we, we, we look at progress as, oh, they took 100 miles. Oh, they, they took 10, 50 miles. No, it's more. 
<laughs> so I'm like, oh, they took one mile and three inches last week. Oh, uh, that's progress. Or in the case of Bakhmut itself, the fighting in the city, it's, oh, they took a city block last week. Wow. But, you know, context is everything in these situations. But the Russian forces in their offensive have begun pushing deeper and deeper into the city center of Bakhmut itself. With some Russian forces, I don't believe a, a mass of them, but some of them even managed to get deep enough into the city that some of the bridges across the Bakhmutsky River, which sort of runs through the middle of it, have been blown up by the Ukrainians to prevent the Russian forces from crossing and getting a bridgehead, which is something that also appears to have been done without orders or knowledge from high command, considering that there are still Ukrainian troops on the eastern side of that river fighting the rest of the Russian troops in the area. So when you come, uh, to me, it looks, uh, it just looks like a mess is being made here. Like looking at all this, it gives me the impression that the battle is ending and that the Ukrainian forces near Bakhmut, uh, they're in the beginnings of a rout. They're blowing up bridges out of self-preservation. It's, it's not a matter of following orders anymore. It's a matter of, okay, well, we're on the other side of the bridge. We can see the enemy approaching. We're going to blow up the bridge. We can see the enemy approaching. We're going to blow up the bridge. Forget everybody else who's on the other side. It's about us now. We are getting out. The, this is a, a losing battle. We're getting out. These other troops who are not just falling back to the other side of the river, they're just pulling out altogether. Like, this is what looks like the beginnings of a rout. And precisely due to that conflict we highlighted earlier between what high command's orders are, which is to stay put and defend, and what they're saying versus what the reality faced by the soldiers on the ground is saying. Because the reality says it's time to get out. The reality says you're being encircled, you're going to be trapped, you will be destroyed. That's what the reality says. And so the soldiers who have been patient, who have held their ground for many months in the face of what is increasingly appearing to be a losing battle, they're saying, all right, it's time to get out. And they might even be making the calculations in their head beyond their own personal preservation. Like say, hey, sure, high command might be upset with us if we leave and blatantly go against their orders, but at the very least, if we leave now, there'll still be a Ukrainian army when the war, when the battle is over. And if that's what they're saying to themselves, they might be right, depending on how many troops get lost in this city. But when you have these disorganized mini withdrawals, as in the case with those troops who blew up a bridge to prevent the Russians from crossing, uh, and you have the wholesale withdrawal of a handful of Ukrainian troop formations out of the pocket entirely, while at the same time more troops are being stripped from other parts of the front to go back into the pocket to reinforce, this is a recipe for disaster. Precisely the kind of disaster that stands to leave 10,000 plus Ukrainian men trapped behind enemy lines. The Russians are saying that they have around 10,000 Ukrainian men in this cauldron. And when you look at the map, you can see that the Russians have secured beefy chunks around Bakhmut. It's not like 
it's not like uh, you take your fingers and you make a circle and that's the encirclement. No, it's more like you take your fists, you put them together to what there's like a little bit of space in between, and then you push forward past a point. That's the type of encirclement we're seeing here where they have these massive expanses of land. And I say massive in a, a relative term. It's not like they have a, a million miles in each direction, but like hard to break through because there's depth on either side. You're not going to break through one part of the pincer to, you know, relieve the city of Bakhmut. No, there's, they have lots of land on either side, on, to the north and the south of Bakhmut, and they're beginning to close in behind Bakhmut. Meaning that once they do that, it's a wrap, because they already have their flanks secured, they being the Russians. So, they're talking about the having 10,000 Ukrainian troops in this pocket, some of them are pulling out, but more troops are going in. So how many troops are going to be stuck in this pocket when the Russians get around to closing the encirclement, closing the pincer? This is exactly the type of disaster I was talking about Ukraine needing to avoid. They, they, it's, they are about to leave 10,000 plus Ukrainian men trapped behind enemy lines. Because that encirclement is coming. Like, the Russians are deadly close to it. Like, we've been talking about this encirclement, and they've been inching and inching and inching closer to it. Well, every day, every inch matters. Now we're getting to the end game here. This encirclement is coming. It's in sight. They can literally see the other road that they would have to take to effectively complete the encirclement. Not complete complete the encirclement where there's literally just a wall of russian troops blocking off anybody from getting in or out of the city but cutting them off from logistical support and at that point it you either had to walk out with leaving your equipment behind or you get blown up i it's a disaster it didn't need to be this way but it's looking like it's going to be a disaster now if ukraine pulls out if they pull out if they, at the last minute, say, hey, it's, it, it's it's over. It's over. We have to leave. If they leave now with the troops that they have, they can take those 10,000 men and set up new dis, uh, defenses at what I've called the Kalyanivka line. And for those who don't remember my episode on that, uh, I believe it was why Bakhmut. Or no, what comes after Bakhmut? What comes next? Uh, I said that there is a place that it looks like Ukraine could set up new defensive positions. Not too far back from Bakhmut as to be surrendering massive amounts of territory. And, you know, you don't have to go all the way back to the Dnieper to establish a new line. No, there's another river and another line of cities and hills that they could take advantage of. And the, the Kalyanivka line running roughly from Kramatorsk through Druskivka and ending at Kostantanivka. That's the Kalyanivka line that I've uh, dubbed. Now, it has the hills, it has a river, and it has lots of urban and suburban terrain. And the cities themselves sort of stretch and bend with the river, providing an almost contiguous band of urban environment for the troops to hide away in and defend in. And as we have learned from this war, the city 
and the urban environment remain the most effective defensive structure, the most effective man-made defensive structure in warfare, even today. So that would be a massive boon to Ukrainian defenses if they were to set up along that line. They have the river, they have the hills, they have the urban terrain, all working in tandem. Now, I'm not certain if the hills to the east of that line are higher, of a higher elevation than the hills in what would be this Kalyanivka line. But what I can say is that beyond the Kalyanivka line, past that river, there are no more hills. And it's just, it's flat country. It's tank country, if you will, all the way up until you get to the Dnieper. Because past this line, this hypothetical line that I'm saying the Ukrainians could use, the the only other place they could set up this kind of a defense would be at the Dnieper River. Because there's just, the towns get smaller between here in the Donbass and the Dnieper. The towns get smaller, they get fewer and farther apart, the hills go away until you get way, way to the western parts of Ukraine, and by that point, the war is over. So you lose, once you get past this line, you lose the hills, you lose the cities, at least for a while, and none of the rivers past this point flow from a north to south axis. They all flow on an east to west axis, which is conducive to troop movements from the east to the west, which is exactly what Ukraine is trying to stop. They need the north-south axis so they can make a line behind a river. There isn't a river like that, again, until you get to the Dnieper. So whether they will, uh, we'll see as, you know, Bakhmut comes to a close, we will see if they take up positions along this Kalyanivka line. If not, then they're in for a really bad situation because the terrain will just stop working in their favor and it'll be really bad. They're going to be out in the open going up against Russian artillery. It's a disaster waiting to happen. Now look, that's if they pull out and I don't think they will. I don't believe that the force around Bakhmut, the entire force around Bakhmut, will get trapped. I don't think that all 10,000 of them are going to sit there and just keel over and die, or at least I hope they don't. But Ukraine, either way, is just not in a position to be losing that many men at once. They are not in a position to be doing that. At this point, I'm certain that they are drawing on their manpower reserves, their reservists that they were training up, and they're taking them rushing their training process rather than, you know, taking the time to get a proper soldier. They're saying, hey, here's a uniform, here's a gun, let's go. Because they, at this point, they can't afford to train them at the speeds that they were training them before. Now they have to, they have to keep men in the field, otherwise they just won't be able to defend themselves. Because when you look at the rates of loss, especially those numbers we've been working with over the past few months, where they've been losing 17,000 as a net negative, it's like, okay, well, these are unsustainable losses. We cannot afford to train you properly anymore. We cannot afford to take the full amount of time to train you. We have to put you in the field. We need certain numbers of men to be in the field in order for our army to be effective at all. So I'm certain that that's what they're doing now. 
because what else can they do? Uh, they, they have they have to use it. They have to use their men. I mean, uh, what else can they do? They could sue for peace, but suing for peace is illegal, apparently. We talked about how that would go in the last episode, and the perspective we should have going into such peace talks. Uh, but eh, they they can't afford to take these kinds of losses. They just can't. They are not in that position anymore. Perhaps in the beginning of the war they could have. But not right now. Not right now at all. If they pull out, they can establish new defenses. But if they don't, we're talking 10,000 plus being trapped in this pocket. I don't believe that all 10,000 of them will get trapped. But I, I just don't see the high command. I don't see the leadership there. I don't see the type of leadership that will save those 10,000 men. And when you, uh, when you look at that, and then you also think about the ammunition that they have to have stored in or near the city of Bakhmut, they're going to lose all of that when Bakhmut is encircled. They're going to lose their men. They're going to lose their machines. They're going to lose their ammunition. They can save the men. They might be able to save some of the ammunition, but they can't save the machines. But that's only if they pull out now. And I don't see them doing that. So they're going to lose men, they're going to lose the machines, and then they're going to lose the ammunition that they already have a shortage on. It's going to get worse. When Bakhmut falls, if it falls that way, and it's looking like it's going to fall that way. But speaking on the issue of ammunition, I guess that's a very nice segue into the next topic, which is exactly that the situation with Ukraine's ammunition, or increasingly the lack thereof. Now we have some words from the Ukrainian defense minister, uh, who has been putting up some figures in his effort to get Western ammunition. He has specifically requested that the EU begin supplying Ukraine with, and this is a very... Interesting number, and we'll break it down later on. It's a hefty one, too. He has requested that the EU begin supplying Ukraine with 250,000 artillery shells a month. 250,000. Now, I'll start by saying he ain't gonna get it. (laughs) But beyond the obvious, which, again, he's not gonna get that. Let's just look at what we're dealing with here, because he also says Ukraine has 300 artillery pieces and that they're firing five to seven thousand rounds of artillery shells a day. Now, perhaps he has more artillery in storage that he's just not using yet. Perhaps he has artillery that's in being repaired at the moment. But this is, you know, the artillery pieces he's actively using, I would assume. If we're if we're going to give Ukraine the benefit of the doubt here, which I I try my damnedest to do. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. These 300 are what they're actively using. They might have more in storage that they're keeping in reserve in case their artillery breaks down and they have to replace it because it takes a while to repair it, especially if it's a foreign made and you have to send it back to its original country to get repaired. A whole bunch of things involving logistics and pacing. They have to pace themselves so they can have artillery when and where that they need it. So... We'll assume that he has more in various means of storage, 
either being repaired or fixed up or modified or being trained on, perhaps. That's another place that artillery could be. And we'll just assume that this is sort of a bare minimum that he's using, this 300. It has, Ukraine has 300 artillery pieces for their entire army. And that they're firing five to 7,000 rounds of artillery shells a day. And again, I think this is a, a, a rationing measure because we were just last week talking about them using 10,000 rounds a day. So perhaps that number was overestimated a little bit because he is arguably the more reliable source here. So perhaps they could be firing 10,000 rounds a day. But when we're but when you put this in the context of a, of a Ukrainian ammunition shortage, it's reasonable that they would start cutting down on the amount of artillery that they're using every day as much as they can because they're trying to store up artillery. They're trying to conserve artillery, especially with this talk of a, a spring offensive that the Ukrainians are going to launch sometime soon, that the, the Russians are preparing for, the Ukrainians are trying to get more aid to prepare for. And perhaps that's why he's uh, asking for these, these artillery shells from the EU, because he's trying to prepare the ammunition he would need for an offensive. Now, I don't think it's going to happen in the spring, I think it'll, if it comes, it'll be in the summer. Uh, so that's two offensives we're waiting on for the summer, the Ukrainian and the Russian. But with the talk of that, combined with an ammunition shortage, he has to stock up on ammunition. Which means you can't go blowing through the ammunition you have, especially when it's uncertain if you're going to get what you're asking for. So... I believe that as Ukraine's ammunition shortage gets worse, we're going to start to see these the, these numbers of shells that they're firing really start to taper off. And they're going to do what they can to keep up some resistance. Because if it becomes apparent to the Russians that the Ukrainians just ain't got no more artillery, they're going to start attacking. And it's going to be horrendous, even more horrendous losses for the Ukrainians. So I think we're seeing various means of rationing on the part of the Ukrainian military, rationing their artillery, rationing their ammunition, because before they were careless with their equipment. Their offensives last summer blew through huge amounts of equipment. Absolutely huge. So uh, we will, uh, I believe we're starting to see now the rationing of this equipment. But it's important to remember that, again, this is the entire Ukrainian army he's talking about. 300 artillery pieces, five to 7,000 rounds of artillery. Sure, they're rationing it, but again, this is rationing for the entire army. These are the numbers that their entire army is working with. Meanwhile, we have some more figures which have started coming out about the rate of fire for the Russian artillery. And those figures are putting Russia's fire rate anywhere from 20 to 40,000 rounds of artillery a day. And if you remember those numbers we had to work with just last week, again, the, that 10,000 figure a day for the entire Ukrainian army, when we were talking about how the, the Russians were supplying the Wagner organization, the Wagner group, with 10,000 artillery over the course of two days, uh, which meant an uh, average of 5,000 a day, that's 5,000 for this force of 20,000 troops. That's how large the Wagner force in Ukraine is, 20,000. So 5,000 for them every day versus the numbers we were working with, 10,000 every day for the Ukrainians. 
now we're somewhere between five to seven thousand but let's just assume the seven thousand for the ukrainians that means wagner almost has parity in its uses of artillery and in the amount of artillery shells it's firing every day it had almost has a parity by itself these twenty thousand men it almost has parity with the entire ukrainian army so i believe that these numbers are believable when we talk about 20 40,000 i believe that that is a believable number now throughout this entire war i've been trying to lowball the the russians reasonably and highball the ukrainians reasonably so i'm going to say that the russians are likely firing anywhere between 20 to 25,000 rounds of artillery a day 5,000 for wagner 20,000 for the rest of their force because remember, they have probably around 200,000 in Ukraine right now. They went in with 160. They're probably around 200,000, maybe 220,000 now after their mobilization. They filled the gaps in their lines. So now they're just chilling out and waiting for the men to train up on their new equipment. Those men that they mobilized back in October and December. The, the, the December mobilization isn't really talked much about. Uh, it's the October mobilization. And granted, the December mobilization is going to take time to finish anyway, uh, but it has been uh, two whole months, two whole months indeed. So probably see some of those troops start making their way to their new positions in the coming months, per certainly by the beginning of summer. Their mobilization might just finish because these are, again, reservists, so it doesn't it's not going to take too long to get them up to snuff. But as of now, we can probably start to expect those the, those October mobilization, those October mobilized troops to start making their way to their positions. And they already are. You see 100,000 in Belarus, a few hundred thousand in Crimea, and the border region between Russia and Central, well... Well, I guess not really central Ukraine, but eastern Ukraine. Not the Donbass, but, you know, right across from Kharkov. So we're already seeing some of those troops start to make their way to their positions. And the Russians are ramping up their production. We're all, we've taken note over the past few weeks how Russia's outproduced the entirety of the West by themselves. So they very well could be firing between, they, they could be very well at that 40,000 figure. Now, I'm going to stick to these uh, 25,000 rounds a day, you know. And the reason I'm sticking to the lower end is because Wagner isn't really representative of the entire Russian army. The reason why is that the fighting around Bakhmut is likely causing a disproportionate amount of artillery usage by the Wagner organization. And I'm certain that the same is likely going to be true on the Ukrainian side meaning that the amount of artillery Russia would need to have or even come close to that 8 to 1 discrepancy we've been hearing about, uh, the amount of artillery they would need to have that advantage over the rest of the Ukrainians on other parts of the front line would be less as well. So I think 25,000 is a good estimate to run with for the time being, and I shall. Now, granted, 
Russia could very well be firing in excess of 50,000 a day, as far as we know. And we'll just be course correcting these numbers as long as the long, long after the war is over. But for the time being, I think these are some workable numbers we have here. And I'm very happy to have them. So going back to that request by Ukraine's defense minister for 250,000 artillery rounds a month. Uh, again, he's not going to get it, but we have numbers to work with. So if we multiply UN, uh, not the UN's, Ukraine's high-end figure, their daily figure of 7,000 rounds of artillery fired a day, multiply that by 30 days, a whole month, that's 210,000 rounds they're firing monthly. So in essence, with this request, they're asking the EU to both recoup Ukraine's monthly losses and supply an additional 40,000 artillery rounds on top of that to give them some wiggle room. One to perhaps build up for this offensive that they are being pushed and pressed to do late sometime in the spring, probably more likely in the summer, if they're smart. Well, if they're smart, they'll sue for peace, but you know, if they're uh, a little more smart, they'll do it in the summer, not the spring. But you're gonna need more artillery than you're consuming if you're gonna build up. So 40,000 on top of that, allows you to build up for that and it gives you a little bit of wiggle room in case you have to use more ammunition than usual like say if the russians were to begin their own offensive which will come now we've been speculating on it but you don't amass hundreds of thousands of troops just to sit there eating away at ukraine's lines no eventually the russians are going to send in the big one and it's just going to be the total collapse of the ukrainian army so that will come, and at the very least, the Ukrainians probably want to have some artillery to be able to put up some resistance against these multiple fronts that they're facing. But, again, that's 200, uh, 210,000 rounds a day, and not a day, a month that Ukraine is firing. They're asking for 250,000. That gives them a surplus of 40,000 every month that they can build up for this offensive or maybe build up for to, to defend themselves but if we run those same calculations with russia's artillery figures we are once again reminded that ukraine's not going to win this war in, in case anyone was uh, doubting whether or not this war was going to end that way you know there are people who still think ukraine's going to win you know perhaps you're listening to me Perhaps you've all, perhaps they've all left and it's just us, us uh, correct boyos. But if we take Russia's likely 25,000 rounds a day, and again, it could be higher than that, but we're going to, we're going to stick to this 25,000. If we take 25,000 rounds a day and multiply that by 30 days, we get 750,000 literally three quarters of a million rounds of artillery fired monthly by the Russian side while Ukraine is firing 210,000. Ukraine is firing 210,000 rounds of artillery every month. Russia's going through that every eight and a half days. And Ukraine, remember, Ukraine is the one running out of ammo. NATO is the one running out of ammo. Russia is not. 
And if they ever did, the Chinese have millions upon millions of 150 millimeter shells, exactly the type of shells that the Russians are using in their artillery, millions of those shells waiting to be shipped to Russia in the event that the Chinese feel it necessary or appropriate to do so. Ukraine cannot win this war. That is the conclusion that should have been reached a long time ago, but we have people playing games uh, in our government in America and in the governments across Europe as well. But, you know, I don't think they would have done this had it not been for the United States jumping to this conclusion. Maybe the British would, you know, Boris Johnson and all. Maybe the Poles and the Estonians might have, and, you know, the Latvians, Lithuanians, the Baltics. Perhaps they would have jumped on this, but had the United States not jumped on this idea that, oh, Russia's not as strong as we thought they were, they're bogged down, and now we can destroy their military in Ukraine, perhaps, perhaps people would have been allowed the clarity of mind to come to this proper conclusion, which, again, should have been reached a long time ago. But the Russians went slow, and now we have this debacle. But that's enough about Ukraine. Now I want to get into the recent G20 meeting. Yes, the one in India. And we'll just uh, we'll just hop right into this. Because last week, we had a summit meeting between the member states of the G20. This is a meeting between, oh boy, America, Canada, India, China, Mexico, Japan, Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, France, the UK, Italy, Germany, Australia, Turkey, Indonesia, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Korea, and the EU. Well, that's cheating. You, you have individual EU member states and the EU representative. Oh, okay, okay, I guess. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> these countries met last week supposedly to discuss trade, energy, common issues, areas of cooperation, you know, general problem solving, even if the problems don't actually get acted upon, not to the G20 anyway, uh, lots of countries are organizing and getting together in other ways, the BRICS, the SCO, you know, various other means, but at the very least, this is what the G20 is supposed to be about, economic cooperation. That's what this thing is meant to do. But the Western Bloc, Europe, Britain, Canada, Australia, and America, decided to take this, this summit about economics and economic cooperation and make it all about Russia and Ukraine. Something which unintentionally ended up being their undoing. Uh, they, they're obsessed. As Alexander and Alex the Duran said, Correctly, I should say, they're obsessed with this Ukraine stuff, and they can't accept that the world is actually not turned against Russia. Russia is not isolated, and they can accept even less the fact that their obsession with Ukraine and in trying to destroy Russia and Ukraine specifically is isolating them instead. They can't accept it. We're the ones being isolated by this obsession with Ukraine, not Russia. And it it's ended up being our undoing at this conference. Because while he was being interviewed, uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, he basically, you know, 
gave us a gut check you know, when he brought up the Nord Stream pipeline bombing, saying it was something Russia would not allow to happen again. And I was like, so you want to talk about Ukraine? Let's talk about Ukraine. You bombed the Nord Stream pipelines. And he said that it was something that Russia would not allow to happen again. He brought up how America and Europe rejected calls and continue to reject calls for a proper investigation into this. I mean, you had Sweden doing an investigation into this. Sweden and Denmark, I think, did an investigation, and then they just don't want to release the results of the investigation. It's like, okay, well, what was the purpose of the investigation? You have the UN pushing for an investigation into the Nord Stream pipeline bombings, and now you have Lavrov pushing for investigations at the G20 meeting. These investigations are going to happen. It's just a matter of time. So what we have here is the West, and most most tellingly, I should say, America, rejecting calls for proper investigations. Into the, if Russia did it, then let it be proven that Russia did it. Russia's isolated, aren't they? The world is united against Russia. The world is standing with Ukraine. Why not let the world investigate the bombing? If it was Russia who blew up the pipeline, ah, but it wasn't Russia. It was who? Me. Me? No, you. It was the U.S. We did it. We're the ones who blew up the pipeline. And if there's an investigation into it, a non-biased investigation into it, they will find out, oh, yeah, it was the United States. I mean, Lavrov named Seymour Hersh specifically, which we can assume means that he believes that that is an accurate accounting of how this likely went down. And a brief rundown of the Seymour Hersh story is that he believes that the U.S. had a special diver team go in, plant C4 on the pipelines. They did not detonate the pipelines. It was instead Norway that sent up, that flew a plane over the area, the general area. They dropped a buoy. That buoy was releasing sonar signals, and those sonar signals set off the C4, causing it to blow up and providing plausible deniability to the United States, or at least so we thought. That's the basic rundown of the Seymour Hersh story. So he brings that up specifically. So he, it's this investigation is going to happen. It's going to happen. And the more the Europeans in specific try to reject and push away this investigation, the more suspicious it gets. The more America tries to say, hey, whoa, 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 don't, don't go looking into that. Don't go looking into what Russia clearly and obviously did. The more we reject these, th these calls and these pushes for a proper investigation, the more suspicious we look. Now it's a cover-up. And the more guilty we're going to look when it comes out for the entire world to see in an, you know, in an undeniable way. Oh, yeah, it was the United States. That'll be the end of Germany's time in NATO. I'll say that much. So uh, he, he Lavrov brought that up. Lavrov also said that the whole aim of the United States in this war is to make Europe into a subordinate uh, is to put Russia, not put Russia, my goodness, tripping all over my words. The whole goal of the United States in this war in Ukraine is to put Europe into a subordinate position to the United States. 
And when you see the deliberate sabotage of the Europeans on multiple fronts, well, it's kind of hard to argue against that. Uh, but that was not the end of it. You see, something special happened during this meeting, which was that Blinken and Lavrov had a meeting. No, nothing much came of that meeting, but the fact that they met at all is something special in and of itself. Because none of the Western leaders, none of the Western, Western diplomats even want to speak to Lavrov. It's like they're afraid of him. Now, Blinken was clearly a part of that pack. He did not want to speak. He did not want to even speak to Lavrov. And he was very unprepared to do so. He was, he had every intention of just not going. And going, I mean, speaking to Lavrov. But he ended up being put in a position where he had to sit down with him. Apparently it was like a 10, 15 minute talk. It didn't accomplish much. And to Blinken's credit, uh, oh my God, bro. <laughs> to his credit, he did bring up Russia's withdrawal from the New START Treaty. That's the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. He did bring it up. So he didn't propose anything new. Uh, he brought it up and then that, that was it. It was half-assed, and it was all Blinken had to say before the talk was over. And it's like, what are you doing? What is the perp What is the point of you being uh, this diplomat if you're not going to be a damn diplomat? I mean, it's not like there wasn't anything to talk to Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, about. There were pl there were plenty of things the two of them could have discussed. You know, I'll just name a few off the top of my head that I put down onto the, these notes here, like the sanctions policy against Russia, NATO expansionism, Russia resuming its blockade of Ukrainian grain shipments. Maybe you could have said, hey, could we get a deal on you not doing that anymore, like you did during the summer where you allowed Ukrainian grain to get out. The uh, The harvest season is just a few months away, you know, if, if you could, you could withdraw and allow Ukrainian ships to get out, that'd be nice. He could have did that. They could have talked about demilitarization of the Arctic Sea. And on that topic, they could have even discussed the partitioning of the Arctic Sea between them, us, Canada, Norway, Greenland, and perhaps even Iceland. You know, we could have talked about that. He could have even talked about the Nord Stream pipeline bombings. Of course, uh, I don't even know. I don't even know why I brought that one up. <laughs> of, co of course, he's not going to talk about that one because we did it, you know. Or maybe, just maybe, they could have discussed the logistics of setting up a baseline framework for peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. But instead, Blinken does nothing, says nothing. Goes, hey, uh, you you withdrew from the New START treaty. I, I, I don't think that was a good idea. And then he runs away, just like he ran away from his meeting with China's foreign minister when the whole balloon fiasco went down in the United States. Instead of you know talking to the Chinese minister, you know talking to them, the people who launched the balloon, and bringing up the subject at the discussions. Instead of talking to this man, this man, Lavrov, and, you know, doing something useful, something, anything, he he just runs away. I'm, I'm amazed 
if I'm being honest with you, I'm just so amazed. It's like, no matter how low my expectations and opinions of him get, this guy still never fails to disappoint. Lord have mercy on us. And please, when Trump returns to his rightful place, please bless us with someone who isn't the textbook definition of worthless. Amen to that. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. Woo! Those are some hefty numbers we went through. Hope you were able to keep up with me, and I hope I was clear enough. I got a new microphone, so I hope I came out nice and crisp. Crispy and creamy. Mm. But anyway, that's all I've got for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.